Hello and welcome back to the History of Cologne podcast. A podcast about the city of Cologne in today's Western Germany. Wait, you know exactly what podcast this is and this is a really long episode. I have it in my guts that this will be a very long episode so I will cut to the chase. There is no introduction and no fun fact of this episode. We just jump into the episode. The summary of Rome Cologne and what does the Roman heritage mean for Cologne today. So, are you ready? For 500 years, the Romans dominated Cologne and the left bank of the Rhine. The conquest of Gaul from the year 58 BCE by the War of Aggression of the Romans under Caesar also had enormous impact on the area on the left bank of the Rhine in what is now Western Germany. For in Caesar's view, everything to the left of the Rhine was part of Gaul, and everything to the right of it, Germania. Whether and how exactly this is true, we have already dealt with in detail. In securing the Rhine border, Caesar also relied on alliances of local Germanic tribes along the Rhine. One of them were the Germanic Ubii, on the right bank of the Rhine, who finally submitted to the power of Rome during the Gallic War. Several years of uncertainty may have passed in the Rhineland after Caesar's death in 44 BCE. When Caesar's heir, Emperor Augustus, prevailed after internal civil wars at the turn of the century, there was real movement in the Rhineland. Under the leadership of Marcus Agrippa, the emperor's friend, a settlement was built on the left bank of the Rhine. This happened in the year 19 BCE. Besides veterans of the Roman army, the Germanic tribe of the Ubii, which was allied with Rome after all, was also settled in this settlement and in the surrounding area. According to this fact, the first name of Cologne was simply Opidum Ubiorum, which is Latin for Settlement of the Ubii. This was the nucleus of Cologne. A settlement area of one square kilometer was laid out like a checkerboard directly on the left bank of the Rhine, which was safe on a hill from a possible flooding of the Rhine. All streets ran parallel to each other or met at right angles according to the Roman pattern. An ancient satellite town was created. In the beginning, this settlement was protected by a wooden wall, including an earth wall, which was then replaced around the year 90 by a massive 8 meter high stone wall, which remained in use until well into the Middle Ages. Most of the residential buildings will probably have been made of wood and clay in the beginning, the materials from the region, which especially the Ubii were still very familiar with. Some buildings in the settlement of the Ubii, however, would probably have been made of stone already around the year 1, as the archaeological find of the so-called Ubia monument shows. The Cologne Ubian monument, which was actually a Roman tower, is thus the oldest preserved stone building in Europe, north of the Alps. The establishment of the settlement that later became Cologne was supposed to be only the beginning of a great campaign of Roman conquest. However, after the defeat in the Battle of Teutoburg Forest in the year 9 and the subsequent unsuccessful attempts to conquer Germania on the right bank of the Rhine, the Romans abandoned their plans for further campaigns. Thus, Cologne does not become the new provincial capital of a large Roman-controlled Germania on both sides of the Rhine as was probably planned. Cologne remains a border city on the Rhine as Rome's window into free Germania. This makes Cologne an important trading center between Germanic peoples and the Roman Empire. 
It was almost by chance that Agrippina the Younger was born here in the year 15. Her father, as well as her mother, the granddaughter of Emperor Augustus, were in the first line of the imperial family. Despite many adversities, Agrippina managed to evade all assassination attempts and intrigues at the imperial court in Rome, and if she did, to control their outcome herself. Thus, at her own behest, she became the wife of the reigning Emperor Claudius in the year 49. Emperor Claudius, by the way, was her uncle. Did I already mention that, how awkward I think it is? For reasons of personal prestige rather than local patriotism, she, as Empress, arranged in the year 50 for her birthplace, Opidomobiorum, to be elevated to the status of a Roman colony. The settlement called Opidomobiorum became legally, as an image of Rome, the colony, Colonia Claudia Ara Agrippinensium, short CCAA, or as in later times simply Colonia Agrippina. This was accompanied by the creation of a separate center for the city, at the latest from the time when all inhabitants were granted Roman citizenship, as well as other infrastructural projects such as a massive stone city wall, a 90-kilometer-long aqueduct, and a large-scale sewage system. In particular, the hygienic level of Roman sewage system was not to be reached again in Europe and in Cologne until the end of the 19th century, Cologne itself did not have a sewer system after the fall of Rome again until 1872, which was celebrated as a great progress then. But in fact, Cologne already had a sewer system at one time, but it was already 1800 years ago. The Batavian Revolt in 69 and 70 briefly cast doubt on Cologne's loyalty to Rome, but the Ubian Roman ruling class of the city of Cologne skillfully managed to master this crisis. A stable Roman Empire from the end of the 2nd century on all fronts leads to a more than 150-year-long flourishing of ancient Cologne. Between 20,000 and 40,000 people lived in the one-square-kilometer city area and in the settlements just outside the city wall during this period. Cologne became the capital of a province after all then the province of Lower Germania, which encompassed large parts of the Western Rhineland up until the North Sea. Due to its strategically important location on the northern border of the empire in Central Europe, countless emperors stopped in Cologne. Cologne became an important trading center between the Roman and the Germanic world. But goods produced in Cologne itself also found a ready market throughout Europe. In addition to the Roman roads, which even from today's perspective are still a true art of engineering, the Rhine River, in particular, served as an important trade route. The Dionysus mosaic is a clear sign of Cologne's prosperity and antiquity in that time, still visible today. So is the Praetorium, the palace of the Roman governor, which was found after World War II in the ruins of an annex to Cologne City Hall by accident. So that means for 2000 years already, political power in Cologne has been exercised in this way from the same place, and this by pure chance. But from the middle of the 3rd century, the overall situation of the Roman Empire deteriorated, so also for Cologne. Epidemics, civil wars and economic crises led to THE crisis of the 3rd century. From the year 260, Cologne is part of the succeeded Gallic Empire, and for the longest time it is the ruling residence. To make matters worse, the usurper Posthumus had himself proclaimed the Roman Emperor in Cologne. The Roman Empire itself broke up into several parts during this period. Only through an enormous effort does it manage to reunite in 274. 
Cologne gets off lightly and is reintegrated into the Empire. Cologne then experiences a last brief upswing for a few decades from the year 310 onwards. The Roman Emperor, later known as Constantine the Great, builds a fort on the other side of the Rhine from Cologne and connects it with a permanent bridge. This was virtually the birth of Cologne on the right bank of the Rhine, as previously the settlement area had only been on the left bank. As a promoter of Christianity, he also made Cologne a center for the Christianization of the region. Christianity had already gained a foothold in Cologne before, but had rather eked out an underground existence due to the empire-wide ways of persecution. The martyrdom of Gerion and Saint Ursula during this period, whether one believes it or not is irrelevant here, made Cologne an important Christian pilgrimage center in the long run. The early Christian church, which had become more and more organized and formed over the centuries, also had important and prominent representatives in late antique Cologne, with the bishops Maternus and Severin. But Rome's power was waning. It is a slow disintegration that began as early as the middle of the 3rd century. In the beginning, the empire dissolved mainly from within. Civil wars and constant struggles for power are consuming the empire economically and militarily. Especially the provinces on the periphery of the empire noticed the increasing weakness. For a long time, Rome had successfully played off the various Germanic tribes against each other. It formed alliances with some, fought some, before they could become a threat, but with the focus on internal battles, the Roman imperial court neglected this policy. But also the numerous Germanic tribes continued to develop over the centuries. The constant exchange with the Romans does not pass them by without a trace. Already in the 3rd century, larger Germanic federations are formed, which are composed of formerly small tribes, like the Franks near Cologne and the Alemanni in today's southern Germany. The military weakness of Rome and the formation of large Germanic groups do not bode well. Thus, a comparatively small band of Germanic Franks manages to plunder Cologne for the first time in the year 355 and even to conquer and hold it. Even if only for one year, as Rome reconquers the city largely without bloodshed. Due to increasing powerlessness, Rome increasingly allowed Frankish groups to settle in the Roman Rhineland and Gaul from the 4th century onwards. Why? Well, especially in the east of the Roman Empire, soldiers are needed. The invasion of the Huns beginning in the 370s and the subsequent conflicts with Goths and other groups of peoples fleeing from the Huns in southeastern Europe are an enormous burden that drains the Roman Empire. The Romans hope to win the Franks as allies, as so-called federates. It is hoped that they can be used as soldiers for Rome's cause, which then also increasingly takes place. Around the year 400, almost the entire military and Roman service on the Rhine is made up of Frankish federates. They are responsible for the defense of the empire in the region. Furthermore, they provide important tribunals for the western power of the empire. It is as if the defense of the border was outsourced by the Romans to a contractor and privatized, with the Franks as a private security company in the service of Rome. In the middle of the 5th century, the Roman central power on the Rhine collapses. While Roman cities in what is now western Germany, such as Trier and Mainz, were almost repeatedly destroyed and their population is killed, Cologne's comparatively lucky. It was largely spared. However, the devastation of the surrounding area of Cologne and, to be 
cut off of the rest of the Roman Empire will also have contributed to a not insignificant decrease in the population of Cologne. Unfortunately, we do not know the exact date when the Roman rule in Cologne ended. The written tradition and the sources are too imprecise for that. It will have happened in the years 410 to 450, something in between that. Probably the Frankish nobles living there realized at some point that they were no longer receiving payments from the Romans from Italy. So they decided as previous tenants, I mean, would you do otherwise, to take over their place from the landlord themselves. Where a power vacuum arises is always filled by the following power. This could only be the Franks logically in the region. The next episode, however, will clearly show that the Franks, who are now at home here, saw themselves as allies and order fulfillers of the Romans until the very end of the Roman Empire. <sighs> that was the history of Cologne Roman times in fast forward. We have now completed this period. Well, for us anyway. For the people of that time, it was certainly a time of upheaval, but whether they were aware that a change of epoch had taken place, well, one may doubt that. Because so often it was like this. Many things changed, yes, but many things remained from Roman times, even if in the future differently. And from these elements, something new would arise in the long run. What, too cryptic for you? That's right, so we'd better discuss that in the next episode. Cologne at the beginning of the Frankish rule. So for now, let's take another look back. What remained of Roman Cologne? I am unsure if I'm allowed to do this for copyright reasons. Therefore, a paraphrase. There's this British comedy movie, The Life of Brian. The movie takes place in the Holy Land during the time of Jesus' life and there is a Jewish resistance group that plans to kidnap the wife of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the province at that time. To get his group in the mood for it, its leader rages against the evil Romans and asks the question, what have the Romans ever done for us? And no, this is not about whether the movie is blasphemous, nor is it to downplay what the Romans put into bloody and cruel action toward the Jews a few decades after Jesus' birth in real the destruction of Jerusalem and the expulsion of the Jewish people from their homeland. No, this is just about that ironic line from that yet funny scene that funny movie. What have the Romans ever done for us? Those who know the movie know what follows. Charlie, one of the Jewish resistance fighters, raises his hand and says two words. The aqueduct. This is followed by a veritable cascade of words from the other comrades about all the good things the Romans had brought to the region. Wine, road building, medicine, sanitation, public order, irrigation and water treatment. What the British comedy group Monty Python meant here primarily as a gag makes definitely some sense and is actually quite apt for Cologne. Whereas the Rhineland had previously been populated by individual settlements and villages with no more than 200 people each, who lived largely from agriculture and subsistence farming, Everything changed with the arrival of the Romans and happened in exactly what the fictional Jewish resistance group presented to their leader in that movie. Governor Agrippa built a supra-regional road network shortly before the turn of the century in all of Gaul and the Rhineland. The Rhineland was now suddenly connected to the rest of the known world in Europe at that time. The distinctive form of urbanity from the Mediterranean region which had been practiced for centuries was now also applied north of the Alps. 
Cologne is a perfect example of this. In these new satellite towns, Roman emigrants and veterans of Rome's numerous wars were to retain the comforts of their civilization even when far away. And at the same time, the Roman way of life was to be made palatable to the peoples originally living there. The aqueduct city walls, thermal baths and sewers, as well as import of luxury goods from the Mediterranean. Of course this was done to appease the subjugate peoples. You have lost your freedom? True, but try these delicious olives while you are being massaged in the thermal baths. Although this sarcastic sentence is not entirely true. The Romans knew how to involve the old elites of the subjugated peoples in power. Let the Ubii continue to live as they wanted and govern themselves in Cologne. The main thing was that they paid taxes and did military service for Rome. That alone was important for Rome. This plan was successful. Cologne is also a good example of this if you only consider how quickly the Germanic Ubii let themselves be Romanized within a few generations. Through the establishment of these satellite towns, the regions north of the Alps developed sustainably, both politically and economically. Over the century, Ubii, Romans, Gauls lived peacefully together in Cologne. From then emerged in the course of the 1st century the Gallo-Roman population, as everywhere in Gaul and on the left bank of the Rhine. Together with many other peoples of the Mediterranean and peoples from Germania, ancient Cologne was already extremely multicultural even compared to today. This is also proven by the existence of a Jewish community in Cologne since the year 321 at the latest. The Romans brought even for us today so trivial everyday things to the Rhine like apples and grapes, possibly also the white asparagus, so popular with us nowadays Germans in spring. Many Roman achievements were to be forgotten after the end of Roman rule in the Rhineland. It is this fact alone that gives the Middle Ages a particularly negative connotation as the Dark Ages. But the fruit and wine growing areas of Cologne and the Rhineland continued diligently. To this day, the Rhineland is one of the most important growing areas for apples and asparagus. And south of Cologne, along the Rhine, begins one of the largest wine growing areas in Europe. Today, anyone traveling by an excursion boat on the middle of the Rhine River can clearly see this visible legacy of the Romans in the endless vineyards on both sides of the river. The trade routes that the Romans established also state. Cologne remains an important trading center for the near future, albeit in a diminished form for the time being, as economies everywhere are down after all the chaos that came with the end of Rome. Trade with England, for example, was to revive in the early Middle Ages. The Rhine remained one of the most important traffic and trade routes, which it still is today as the most important European waterway. Speaking of the Rhine, what about the bridge that Constantine the Great had built across the Rhine in the year 310 to connect Cologne with the Fort Deutz? Well, that's really not so easy to answer. There are indications that the wooden bridge was already largely dilapidated and unusable around the year 500. Other reports testify that it was demolished as a dilapidated structure only around the year 960. All that remained were isolated bridge piers to the annoyance of the Rhine boatmen. Why was no new bridge built later? Well, we will come to that eventually in another episode. Another question is what happened to the Deutz military camp? Well, here the question is easier to answer. It remained in its form. 
how it was used directly after the takeover of the Franks, we will also look at that in the next episode. Today in Deutz you can clearly examine the foundations of the Roman fort that was used after the Roman period. Around the former fort, which much later became a monastery, a large settlement developed. And nowadays, Deutz is the part of the city center of Cologne on the right bank of the Rhine. Another visible and still noticeable heritage we will clearly feel in the course of this podcast. Cologne has been influenced by this more than almost any other city, well, maybe except Rome. The power of the Christian and then the Roman Catholic Church in the city and the surrounding area. The Romans had resisted this new religion for almost three centuries, whereby this is too mild for some faces. There were veritable waves of persecution against the Christians who were still operating underground at the time. The Christians in Cologne probably suffered a similar fate. They had to remain in hiding until about the year 310. Despite all persecution and repression, this religion spread rapidly. However, it was still far from having the majority of the population in the empire or the city. With the promotion and then adoption of Christianity by the Roman emperors in the course of the 4th century, this changed fundamentally. As the state religion, it was adapted to the desires and requirements of the Roman emperors. When the empire finally fell, however, the church continued to exist. The reasons for this are manifold and would again go beyond any scope. Well, Roman Catholic Christianity at that time was still far from being what we know later in the High Middle Ages, with cardinals, popes, and a tightly organized church structure before which even emperors and kings of Europe have reverence. But the basic structure is already formed in Roman times. The Pope stays in Rome, because he was originally only the Bishop of Rome. Only in the course of the centuries he rises as Bishop of Rome, also to the head of the whole Catholic Church. The bishops, whose bishoprics were often located within the respective Roman provincial borders, also continue to exist long after the empire has already breathed its last breath. Clearly, the current bishopric boundaries of the Catholic Church have changed many times over the centuries, also that of the Archbishopric of Cologne. With the first known bishop of Cologne, Maternus, who was best friends with Emperor Constantine, the beginnings of today's Archbishopric of Cologne also go back to the 4th century and Roman times. We don't just have to talk about the church as an organization. The Cologne church buildings themselves also survived the end of Roman rule. In Frankish times, they continue to flourish and are expanded through donations from the respective rulers and patrons. Numerous churches in the style of Romanesque architecture are founded and additionally built. The same is true for monasteries, which we have not yet discussed. There is a reason for this, because it still takes some time until the monastic system also arises north of the Alps. The current existence of the continued and expanded church buildings from the ancient times, such as St. Gerion, St. Severin, perhaps also St. Ursula, as well as the bishop's chapel which stood where today's Cologne Cathedral is located, speak for themselves that Cologne was continuously populated, despite insufficient written source material from this transitional period from Roman to Frankish rule. The special thing is, the churches often survived the end of the Roman Empire pretty well. The new Frankish rulers did not come to destroy but to rule. At the same time, the Franks are not even Christians themselves. 
but especially the Germanic pagan Franks in Gaul realized that they can use the church and the remaining Roman state structures in the provinces to secure their power. At this time, most Franks can't write, and I think they will never learn it anyway. They leave it to the church. The gather Roman population from which the priesthood and the state personnel in Gaul and the Rhineland were largely recruited could, however, write. As a result, Latin remained the language of communication and documents in the Middle Ages. Latin was still familiar to many people in Europe, so soon after the fall of the Roman Empire, in addition to their own mother tongue. Perhaps you too were tormented with Latin in school. You may have had to read Ovid and Caesar's Gallic War as I did, and I can understand that this was annoying for some. But at the latest at university, I realized how good it was that a kind of simple Latin lived on in Europe that never changed because it was a dead language after all. So the language would never evolve, it would always stay the same. Why? Well, language is constantly evolving, especially in the Middle Ages and early modern times, even regional differences within each language were enormous. If English is your first language, read Shakespeare you'll notice that it's already pretty far removed from modern-day English. This is what happened to me on a larger scale when I once tried to read a text from the 9th century at university, which for once was not written in Latin, but in the language of the region. It was written in Old Saxon. Good grief, I didn't understand a word. In any case, the churches remained significant because the new Frankish rules in Cologne and everywhere else in their territories commissioned them to do state work, prepare documents, keep archives and diplomatic exchanges, who else was so good at speaking and writing and continued to have a Europe-wide network after the Roman Empire collapsed? That's right, the Roman Church. In return, the local church received protection from each of the new rulers. It was a win-win situation. But as I said, it would still take some time for the Catholic Church to develop the power it then had. That still sounds too vague for you? Don't worry, the further historical development of Cologne is a good example of how the interplay between secular power and the church took shape. But we will find out about that in detail in the coming episodes. What else is visible of the Roman heritage in Cologne? Well, the obvious, like the buildings. The Praetorium will be used as a seat of power by the Franks for a long time to come, Residential buildings from Roman times are understandably no longer preserved. Likewise, the inner city water conduit is no longer preserved and has hardly been found during excavations. The once 90-kilometer-long water pipeline to Cologne is only preserved in parts today, but that alone is very impressive and ideal for a trip into the countryside if the city of Cologne should ever get too crowded for you. We are luckier with Roman sewers, Directly parallel to today's city hall runs an accessible Roman sewer, and it really is still in top condition today. And the cherries on top are of course the large Dionysus mosaic made of millions of small stones and the Publicius monument. For centuries the Roman city wall will continue to protect the medieval city of Cologne. Some watchtowers are also preserved, with the most famous example on the northern side of the city wall, in today's street of Zeughausstraße, where the tank duel began in 1945. 
Its continued use is also the reason that so many partial sections of the Roman city wall still exist today. Attentive listeners have certainly followed my pictures of it on social media. The fact that we can still find and present ancient treasures in Cologne, however, is also due to the now universally recognized insight in the city and society to preserve these buildings or finds, if possible. Numerous associations collect money for structural preservation such as the Roman city wall. And as a little fun fact, the history of our city is particularly tangible for the construction industry today. That's because every construction site in the city today, in addition to all the building requirements, also has to check two other aspects that are closely linked to Cologne's history. First, old aerial photographs have to be checked every time to see whether unexploded ordnance from the World War could be lying dormant in the ground. We don't want an explosive surprise, don't we? That is one thing. The other falls under the term, which in German has the wonderful name of Bodendenkmalpflege. To translate that word, that is actually, I think, impossible. Therefore, I prefer to explain the term. Whenever a construction site is planned, it is also investigated whether the land in question could be archaeologically important. For this purpose, in this case, the builders and the archaeologists of the Roman Germanic Museum, who carry out the Bodendenkmalpflege, on behalf of the city of Cologne, agree on a contractually fixed period of time. Before construction can then take place, the excavation pit must first be archaeologically examined. Thanks to this concept, we in Cologne owe a great many insights into the past. Many archaeological treasures would have been lost forever, perhaps unintentionally or perhaps intentionally. For Cologne also continues to be a city that is rapidly developing and growing. For one or the other developer, other aspects are certainly more important here than the safeguarding of archaeological treasures. So I'm glad we have this concept of Bodendenkmalpflege. Another Roman heritage that is still visible up until today is the Roman Harbour Street near the Cologne Cathedral, which lies in the shadow of the Roman Germanic Museum. Then there is the Roman Germanic Museum itself. The main exhibition there features thousands of exhibits from the period. Amphorae, jars, tombstones, coins, archways, busts, statues and whatever your heart desires. And yes, of course, the mosaic of Dionysus and the Probitius tomb. Completely preserved buildings from Roman times, we have again unfortunately not in Cologne. My personal theory is that due to the continuous and dense settlement of Cologne, the old Roman buildings, now no longer usable, were gradually demolished over the time. Building material was extremely valuable then, as it is today, and was therefore readily reused. Have you never wondered how the Pope in Rome was able to have so many large, beautiful churches built? That's right, he used numerous Rome buildings from antiquity as quarries, to the chagrin of the Colosseum and other monumental buildings in the Eternal City. Earthquakes were not the only culprit. So again, my note to be sure to visit the city of Trier. There, parts of the thermal baths, the city gate, Porta Nigra, an amphitheater and the Basilica of Constantine have been preserved until today and nearly in full size. They give a good impression of how it might have looked here in Cologne 2000 years ago. Another recommendation would to be visit the present-day town of Xanten in the north of Cologne, there is a huge open-air museum which tells the story of the Romans in this region. 
He was also the military camp of the Romans called Vetera, which we dealt with in the episode about the uprisings of the Batavians, the Batavian Revolt. I really need to go there. I really don't know why I've never been there. Okay, I think I once was there, but I was a baby and, of course, I don't remember that. But what is still recognizable on the city map from Roman times in Cologne are most of the Roman street roads in the old city. The two main streets, Cardo Maximus and Decumanus Maximus, live on today as the streets of Hohe Straße and Schildergasse. They follow the same courses as in ancient times. For this I have created an interactive map via Google Maps on my homepage, where you can see this clearly. Link to it in the show notes. The course of the Roman long-distance roads leading to Cologne from every direction is also identical today with the modern arterial roads in Cologne. They bring people from the surrounding countryside to the city up until today. If you were to follow today's street Luxemburger Straße, running to southwest of Cologne, you would eventually arrive in Trier, as it follows the course of the Roman Via Agrippa. And the Bonner Straße, the Roman border road parallel along the Rhine to the south, leads directly to, oh wonder, the city of Bonn. In ancient times, an important military camp in the south of Cologne. As the important Via Belgica, running to the west, today's street Aachener Straße already connected Roman Cologne with the province of Gallia Belgica in antiquity. When excavation work was undertaken on the road west of Cologne in the year 1843, one of the best preserved Roman burial chambers north of the Alps was found by pure chance. This should not surprise us since the Romans buried their dead directly along the long distance roads outside of the city. It was expressly desired that the names and the memories of the dead be clearly visible to anyone passing by. What was surprising is that the tomb was so well preserved after all this time. Thank God here too, compared to the zeitgeist of these times, the preservation of archaeological monuments was already very advanced. The grave can be visited today and shows exemplarily how the distinctive Roman grave cult looked like. You can really walk downstairs into that chamber. Unfortunately, I have completely ignored this significant find in the course of the podcast so far. So, shame on me. But I must also confess that I have never been there myself. Therefore, I can hardly report anything about it. I'll have to catch up on that. But I'll be happy to post pictures and backgrounds in the companion post of this episode. Link to it, as always, in the show notes of this episode. And in the end, we are left with something very obvious about the Romans in Cologne. So obvious that I almost forgot it myself. The name of the city. Cologne, or Köln, as it is known in German, is a clear sign that the Roman name has been handed down to modern times and never changed dramatically. We will come to the development of the city name in the next episode. The Romans actually named the city Colonia Agrippina, or just Agrippina, and not primarily Colonia. Colonia simply meant colony in Latin and only testified to the legal status of this community. But as I said, more about that in the next episode. The Roman heritage lives on in Cologne, up until today, and many Cologne citizens claim that Cologne, up until today, is the most northern city of Italy because of its Roman roots. And we say this 
with full pride. That was about all I could think of that survived Ramon Colon. Immaterial things like saying Cologne has always already been an open and tolerant city, thanks to its Roman heritage, I personally think are absolute nonsense, because there will be phases in which Cologne is clearly anything but open-minded and tolerant, and we don't have to wait to the Nazi time to see that. We, don't, we really don't have to. It already happens way earlier. Absolutely no one or nothing remains in history innocent, without mistakes and negative, whether historical personalities, religions, peoples or nations, and the city of Cologne is no exception. I'm pretty sure I've forgotten quite a few things. Fun fact, by the way, I already forgot some things in the very first episode of this podcast, when we talked about the prehistory of Cologne. The Neanderthals, I hope this is the right pronunciation of it, who were the second known human species on this planet beside Homo sapiens, first came to the light of research not far away from Cologne. For the first time in 1856, bone remains of this human species were found in the Neander Valley, a valley section of the Rhine tributary called Düssel, near the present-day city of Düsseldorf. By far I want to claim the Neanderthal for Cologne. That would deeply deeply offend the local patriotic feelings of our neighboring city of Düsseldorf. The city already has no landmarks, nor decent beer. Out of pure pity, the British made it the new capital of my state, North Rhine-Westphalia, one year after World War II in 1946. I'm just kidding. Düsseldorf is a beautiful city, and I think the not entirely serious amnesty between the two geographically Close cities of Cologne and Düsseldorf keeps both sides young and dynamic. Competition is good for business, as the saying goes. Düsseldorf has great mustard and schnapps. We will also encounter Düsseldorf in the course of this podcast. But it will be quite a while before this city sees the light of day. What I also pretty much left out in the course of this podcast is to address this famous battle of Teutoburg Forest in the year 9, and I do believe I mentioned the wrong year in the episode when I briefly talked about it. I think I mixed it up with Augustus' death in the year 14. Well, never mind. The topic of the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest is so complex and comprehensive that even the multi-million dollars new Netflix series The Barbarians cannot manage to cover it sufficiently because it is almost impossible due to the complexity. I therefore left it at listing that the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest and in the long run the end of Roman campaigns on the right bank of the Rhine lead to the fact that Cologne remains a city on the edge of the Roman Empire. But in this way is also a gateway between the Roman world and the Germanic world. The Germanic tribes, the permanent neighbors of Roman Cologne, also received far too little attention in this podcast but this is also a topic which is much too huge for a podcast about the city history of Cologne. Here too, you should take away, the Germans never existed. They were not a unified ethnic group internally. This is a term that was made up by the Romans. Germanic people were also for the Romans the people who simply lived on the other side of the Rhine. So also people in today's Scandinavia or the Goths on the Danube later were also Germanic. But in the end, they did not have much in common with the Franks on the Rhine, for example. Above all, 
and here the English language now plays a trick on us, the Germans are not to be equated with the Deutsche, modern-day Germans of today. A lot has happened in the 2000 years and yes, there is certainly something Germanic in many Deutsche, modern-day Germans, and certainly in many other people around the world, but not just in the modern-day Germans alone. But okay, I digress. So what does the Roman heritage mean for Cologne today? The people of Cologne today are pretty aware of the Roman origins of their city. Sure, Cologne is only the fourth largest city in Germany today, but it was already a large city in Europe 2000 years ago, with a population of 20 to 45,000 people. Back then, that time, this is a lot of people. In the second century, the areas where larger cities in Germany today, like Berlin, Munich and Hamburg are located, were undeveloped land and often no more than a swamp. And I know this sounds very arrogant, but Cologne is one of the few, perhaps the only continuously inhabited large cities in Europe, north of the Alps, in the last 2000 years. This feeds a self-confidence in the citizens of Cologne, which can have the following dimensions, among others. Berlin might have hip fashion, latest trends and the best parties. Well, in Cologne, people were already throwing great parties with the ancient Romans 2000 years ago. After all, that's what the boisterous scenes on the Dionysus mosaic show us, and this very mosaic enlarged dining hall itself, which was found at the Cologne Cathedral. And Hamburg was founded by the initiative of Charlemagne? Cool, but did you know that Cologne was granted city rights by Emperor Nero's mother, and that Emperor Augustus and his friend had already established Cologne as a settlement before Jesus was born? And Munich has the Oktoberfest? Cool, but did you know that already 2000 years ago, during the Roman Saturnalia celebrations, things were getting high and a boisterous mood prevailed in Cologne already? Well, and even if I'm getting a little ahead of myself, Cologne is an important city in the Middle Ages. By the year 1200, it is the largest city in Europe north of the Alps, right after Paris. Even London, Naples and even the city of Rome were significantly smaller than Cologne in terms of population. This historical heritage, it sticks to this day, and provides a self-confidence for this 2000-year-old city that understandably some non-Cologne residents might not infrequently take as arrogant. But this doesn't just apply to Cologne. The city of Trier, the favored imperial residence of Constantine the Great and the west of Germany, also claims a role of its own in the Germanic Kingdom of the Middle Ages, because of its Roman roots. But we will get to that in the course of this podcast as well. Just to conclude this rather long episode, to some it may sound contrived, but for me what I'm about to say has an interesting historical twist. When Germany, and especially Cologne, was down and out after World War II, with the city center almost completely destroyed, the Germans alone would not have been able to rebuild everything. So the then first federal chancellor of West Germany, with the name Konrad Adenauer, incidentally a Cologne man through and through, made a recruitment agreement with numerous European countries to bring workers to the young Federal Republic of Germany. The first recruitment agreement was concluded with Italy in 1955. And so it came to pass that, starting in 1955, Italians came specifically to the Rhineland for the first time after World War II. 
Of course, the history of these so-called guest workers at the time was not all positive. The working and living conditions of many of these guest workers were precarious and everyday racism was present. But that's a topic we will cover when we get to the middle of the 20th century with the podcast. Long story short, what I was trying to say. Starting in 1955, hundreds of thousands of Italians came again, recruited specifically to the Rhineland and also, of course, to Cologne. They helped with the reconstruction, rebuilt the houses, built new streets, residential areas and filled vacant jobs in industry and crafts. Some stayed here forever and found a new home in Cologne. I really find it a beautiful irony of history that the start of recruiting Italian workers happened almost exactly 1900 years later, when the Roman Empress Agrippina elevated Cologne to Roman colony in the year 50. And with further recruitment agreements with other countries, Spaniards, Portuguese, Greeks, North Africans and Yugoslavs also came to us. These were all countries and regions that, like Cologne, were part of the Roman Empire 2000 years ago. With the population, of course, came the culture and the way of life to the Rhine. In very simplified terms, one could provocatively claim it was as if history was repeating itself from 1900 years ago when Cologne was founded as a Roman colony. Thanks for listening for this very, very long episode. I made so many mistakes recording this like never before because my mind cannot concentrate anymore. So really, thank you for listening. The next episode takes us back to the chronological course of this podcast. Even if it will be difficult because of the low number of historical sources, let's take a look at the Frankish Cologne of the 5th century. For from now on, the Franks are no longer nameless figures in the historical tradition described by the Romans merely as barbarians. Roman power is no more. Now the Franks write their own history. A Frankish petty king named Sigibert resides in the Praetorium of Cologne at this time of the Frankish takeover. He now rules a part of the former Roman province of Lower Germania with his clan. But the title of petty king is new. What does that mean? Well, it has to do with the form of rule among the various Frankish tribes in the post-Roman era in Gaul. We'll have to take a closer look at this form of rule and this Sigibert of Cologne. Until next time... Recommend me to others. Thank you and auf Wiedersehen. Also check out the links in the show notes and learn how you can support this podcast. Dankeschön.